another edition of Turned Out of Punk. I'm your host, Damien Abraham. Once again, I'm bringing you a conversation with someone who grew up listening to punk, may or may not still be involved in punk, but had their life changed by the genre in a major way. And today on the show, huge guest, huge guest, someone I'm a big fan of, someone I've always wanted to talk to, Talib Kweli, the legend, is on the show today. More on that in one second. But first, if you'd like to get in touch with me, head over to the email address, turnedoutapunkpodcast at gmail.com. That is run by my brother, show producer, and, and runner of the Facebook page and Instagram page for Turned Out of Punk, Tristan Abraham. Tristan, thank you so much for the hard work you do, like booking Talib Kweli. Tristan did not give up on this, and we made it happen, so thank you, Tristan. Uh, also, if you'd like to find me on social media, I am at left for Damien on Instagram and Twitter. If you want to support the show, the best way to support the show is just by telling all your friends, letting everyone know that you know that you enjoy what we do here on Turned Out of Punk. And we, you can spread the word that way. Or you can subscribe to it and rate it on iTunes. Or you can head over to patreon.com slash turnedoutofpunk and check out the stuff we do over there, including footnotes. And thank you. Thank you to everyone that does go over there and support the show that way. Speaking of support, this show would not be possible without the kind, loving support of the fine folks at Vans. They came aboard a few years ago and said, Damien, do what you do. Just don't, you know... Do it out of your own pocket. And they have really helped me out here. And I saw that they're doing a collaboration with the Guggenheim. So here they are doing shoe collaborations with the Guggenheim and, and, and uh, collaborations with little old me. So thank you for uh, believing in little old me, as well as the Guggenheim. You know, they need support too. Also, a little support from my buddy, Nick Woj. They just put out a collaboration shoe with him in Concepts that looks like uh, an old Vivian Westwood sex shop sweater. It's, it's super sick. <laughs> These shoes are amazing. So... Shout out to Woj as well. Woj, I tried to give you a shout out in this episode. It did not go so well. Talib Kweli cut me off. So I want to say for the record, though, now, uh, Cold Words do not have any songs about shoes. You'll understand when you get there. I get cut off before I explain the point I'm getting. Anyway, you'll hear it in a second. But that's it. On to today's show with that. Today on the show, Talib Kweli. Now, I've been a fan since I was a little kid. Now, this is someone that uh, when I first got you know, back interested in hip hop as like sort of a, a an older person. The hip hop rap music was the first thing I loved as a kid. But when I kind of got back into it as a teenager, it was just when Rockus Records and and Black Star and of course Talib Kweli were all just popping off. So for me, this was perfect. This is the stuff I got completely immersed in and became a fan of. And I've heard Talib Kweli over the years, talk about being a fan of punk rock, you know, and we're talking, no, sorry, he hasn't, I haven't heard him talk about being a fan of punk rock, I should say. I've heard him over the years talk about punk rock and the significance of punk rock and its relationship to hip hop, but it wasn't actually until at the Phil Kellum, Phil Kellum on Twitter, thank you for this, Phil, alerted me to an interview that he did with Everlast on his People's Party podcast, which you can hear. It's great alliteration, by the way. You can also find it on YouTube. Not so great alliteration with YouTube, but the People's Party podcast on, on you know, podcast platforms, uh, whatever. Uh, I've heard him talk about on that with JPEG Mafia, talk about punk rock, but it was actually this episode with Everlast where he specifically said, I used to love all that stuff. And so thank you very much to Phil for alerting me to this thing. Check out the People's Party as well. It's a great podcast, independent of the fact that he mentioned punk rock on it. And once I heard that, I knew that this had to happen. And so it really fell on Tristan to kind of, you know, uh, chase this one. Because as you'll hear in the interview, Talib Kweli right now is not, you know, he's, he's in the middle of the Midwest. He's right now in... Uh, at the Dave Chappelle summer camp. When I interviewed him, he was at the Dave Chappelle summer camp. It's so funny actually, cause I finished talking to him and I'm like, I actually know some people that, you know, shout out to Narcy and a tribe called red mentioned them. And he said, well, funny, I'm going to go see Narcy right now and record something. 
and he ended up recording a song on a, a beat by Tim the Toolman from A Tribe Called Red. So, so shout out to my friends in A Tribe Called Red. I love you guys, and it all goes full circle. You know, I could go on. You know, now we can connect Talib Kweli to the band Left for Dead. I will get into that in a future episode with A Tribe Called Red, but not yet. This is about Talib Kweli, and my gosh, this is a good one. Unfortunately, because he is in the middle of the Midwest, in the middle of a, I don't know, I assume nowhere from what he describes it like a little bit, uh, we actually lose the first five minutes of this interview, which unfortunately means we lose the how'd you get in a punk part of the interview. He does reiterate it throughout the episode, so you are going to hear that as well. Just to bring you up to speed about what we're talking about when you're going to jump in, we were just talking about how he had been exposed to punk rock through seeing it on the streets growing up as, as a kid, but it wasn't until he got sent off to boarding school that he met kids that were into punk rock. Anyway, as I say, he reiterates all this, you'll hear it, but we jump in as it's going. Since we're on the topic of notes, I should get into another note. I was completely wrong about sniffing glue. When you hear it, You'll understand uh, it's actually from the zine Sideburns fanzine. So I apologize for being so assured. And uh, I said sorry to Nick Woj already. Gave my shout out to Phil Kellum. Thank you so much again, Phil, for making uh, making this a, something that we're aware of at Turn Out of Punk. If you have any tips, if you hear about someone mentioning being a fan of punk rock, please send them into Turn Out of Punk podcast at gmail.com email address because we will try and chase it down because that's what we do here. We have fun like this. Oh, I'm excited for you to hear this. This is a really good one. This is one of my favorite ones I've ever done. Uh, I think that's it. I don't think I have any more notes to give you. Uh, sit back, relax, and enjoy Talib Kweli on Turn Down a Punk. Yeah, yeah. Trust the Um Yeah. Yeah, like, like, like you ever seen Ad Adams, uh, Andy Samberg do a, <laughs> yeah. a Raj Trent? Yeah. Like you had that type of kid who was like into Bob Marley and Peter Tosh and the Whalers and, and had like reggae poster, like red, yellow and green flags in their room. And then you had like the deadhead kids who were like into fish and shit like that and blues traveler and shit like that. But then there was like an overlap, like like you'd have kids who were listening to who had like reggae flags, like the Jamaican color flags, but like the deadhead bear on the flag. Yeah. <laughs> yep. <laughs> You know what I'm saying? And and like they played a lot of hacky sack. And um and then you had you had that and you had um you had kids who were into but then those kids were cool, but the kids who really went out of their way to associate with hip hop and understand hip hop were the punk rock, uh hardcore punk rock kids. Um and these were kids who were listening to Operation Ivy and Dead Kennedys and Bad Religion and bands like that. And I found fashion-wise and lyric-wise there to be an, a lot of overlap at that time with hip-hop and with the with the with the political leanings of hip-hop and the political leanings of the, the particular brand of punk rock that the kids I was hanging out with were listening to. It's funny because it's it's come up a lot of times on this show now with various guests um, that you know you look at New York at that period in you know the late seventies early eighties you have the birth of punk rock and ultimately hardcore happening simultaneously with the birth of hip hop. And it's, it's almost like graffiti is the common link between the two scenes. Yeah. I think it, I mean, graffiti It's more than graffiti. I think it's the, the urban decay uh, of the city, not having jobs at that time. Um, the punk rock explosion that happened in the, in the, in the UK happened largely because of people out of work and the kids feeling like, just, just feeling like listless or whatever. But I think with punk and hip hop, it's, it's even deeper than that. I think, 
the the deepest connection for me is the idea that you can be an amateur musician and still be a successful hip hop musician. You can be an amateur musician and still be a successful punk rock musician because it throws both both genres throw convention out of the window. Mm-hmm. And um, I think hip hop just because it comes from black culture and it comes from hip hop is a, leans more on respecting the culture, respecting the traditions, respecting the elders. But part of punk punk culture also polices its own culture in the same way that hip hop does. Um, even if this, if the aesthetic is slightly different. And then also I think what's very interesting that I think is under underrepresented and under talked about is the idea that punk rock is self-aware in the same way that hip hop is self-aware. Like kids who are into punk rock, punk rock are listening to songs that are largely about listening to punk rock. Absolutely. Hip hop. Yeah. Hip hop kids who are, kids who are really into hip hop, the people who are into the underground hip hop, the, the rudimentary, you know, fuel that lights the fire that is hip hop. It's a lot of rap songs about being a good rapper. A lot of rap songs songs about keeping hip hop real. And I think punk does that when like, like minor threat, Doing a song called Minor Threat is a very hip-hop thing to do. <laughs> yeah, very much. Yeah, I totally get that. Yeah, totally. And it's also like there are two genres at the time that are are giving youth voice. You know, like there's, you know, classic rock. It's all about the bands that came before. But like hip-hop and punk rock, it's like what's happening now, especially hardcore actually more. Yeah, but I mean, even 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 um, even with the early overlap, with, with the overlap between what the early hip-hop groups were doing with Fab Five Freddy and Blondie and them were all doing, and they were all going to the downtown punk clubs. Um, even with that stuff, it was like, um, punk, what, you can listen, I can listen to a punk rock record. I can listen to, and I'm like, I can listen to a Bad Rage record and be like, that's a reggae song. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know? I could listen to a, you know, certain, certain hardcore punk acts and be like that's a that's a rap record he's rapping yeah yeah absolutely you know hip-hop does the same thing punk i can listen to a punk record and be like that's a 50s rock and roll song it's just because the attitude of it is punk it makes it a punk record they're also like when you bring that up it's also like two very much postmodern genres that look at like so the history of music and Mm -hmm. and recontextualize it yes whether it's whether it's whether it's done because we're thumbing our nose up at it, or whether it's done because we're paying tribute to it, mm-hmm. it's still a recontextualization and it's still sort of a, a collage of, of things that came before. So I think punk prides itself on being like "fuck the past," we're we're, we're in the we're in the now, no no future, and we're, it's all about what's happening right now. But I, I think that's a I think the real musicians understand that it's a legacy there that they're building on. Definitely. Um, so going back to your journey, like wh- where were you kind of hearing stuff like Gangstar? Was it from the radio or is it kids around you in school? Like before you went away to school? Before I went away to school, I was in hip hop took a hold of me in boarding school. It, it, it just like punk music. It was on the streets of New York. So it was mm-hmm. impossible to get away from. I grown up in New York. I remember hearing punk in the streets, seeing people dressed in punk rock fashion. I would hang out in Greenwich village. All the hip hop kids hung out of Greenwich village. So you know, we would shop at some of the, there'd be overlap. Some of the mm-hmm. stores I shop at would be where punk kids would hang out at. Um, and so it was just around me, but I got into hip hop in junior high school because all the kids, all the cool and popular kids were hip hop and I wanted to be cool and popular. It was a status symbol. <laughs> I wanted yeah. to get girls and all the girls I liked listened to hip hop. And so I developed, I, I, before that I had a love for writing poetry and plays. And so I was good at writing poetry. I was good. At, I was a good writer, but I applied my, writing skills to wanting to get girls and writing rap songs 
What was the first concert you ever went to? The first concert I ever went to was at Toad's Place in New Haven, Connecticut, which is a famous punk club. Mm-hmm. Um, I was at boarding school at the time, and I read the Village Voice, whatever the, the version of the Village Voice in, in Connecticut would be, and it said that Ice Cube was coming to Toad's Place with Del the Funky Homo Sapien and, and WC in the Mass Circle. And so I snuck out of school that night and went to the Ice Cube show. I was, I, it was, this was 1991. <laughs> so I had to be 15 years old. Um, but it was interesting about this conversation is my second concert I ever went to was Ice T and Body Count at the Ritz and Bad Religion opened. Oh, wow. Yeah. And that was the, my first mosh pit. That was my first punk show. I watched Ice-T perform a body count and then halfway through the show, go backstage and change into like a more gangster outfit and perform as Ice-T. Like he was like a, a totally different person, which I thought was phenomenal. But like that, I feel like that's, the Ice Cube show was the first concert I had, I saw, and it made me, the Ice Cube show made me realize that what the what hip hop was. Mm-hmm. Like, but the, the Ice-T body count bad religion show that I went to see at, that was at a small, small club. The Ritz was a bigger venue. And that made me realize what the power of performing could be. How, how did Del the Funky Homo Sapien go over at that time in, in Connecticut? Um, Del was Ice Cube's cousin. Yeah. Del, by that time, had a hit record with, um, with uh, Mr. Dabalina. And um, I was a Del fan, and I liked, uh, I liked Eye Examination, I think was the name of the song that I liked. And Del had, Del had a song called... <laughs> Del had a song called Dark Skin Girls Are Better Than Light Skin Girls. <laughs> I disagree, homeboy. <laughs> but um, no, Dell was. I mean, Dell played to a very a crowd that wanted to see Dell. But I, what's interesting about you asking that is, I remember being at the new music seminar um, a year before then. Yeah. And Dell was performing in front of a hostile New York audience, and I, I'll never forget this. DJ SNS was to, was like one well, of the number number one mixtape DJs at the time, and it was like a new music seminar event because I would go to those a lot before I went away to boarding school, and he. Dell was up next, and he said, "Up next, we got Dell the Funky Homo. Dell the Funky Homo. What kind of name was that?" And I was backstage with Dell, and I watched him get really upset. And that was important to me in my development as an artist, because it was the first time I saw an artist be a human being and get upset. To me, he was just a guy from that was a rapper. He was like a star, but I saw him be visibly hurt by the fact that New York, a famous New York DJ, was sort of taking a piss and making fun of him. It's funny because, like, I remember at the time, you know, just being a, a fan of music, getting into music myself, reading, and like a lot of the people were coming at Dell, uh, you know, in, even the fact that he was Ice Cube's cousin. So I was just—it's such a mismatch of styles on that tour. I was just wondering how mm-hmm. he went over. Yeah, I mean, Ice Cube was—that was—I haven't seen much interaction with Ice Cube and Dell over the years besides that period. Yeah, Dell was—that was Dell. That, that was Dell's first single, first album. So you know, the, the record label found a way to get him onto Ice Cube. I don't. Uh, I have a friend from, from the Bay Area who just walked to the door, Chris Riggins, who kind of grew up around Dell and them. But was well, I, I asked him, was Dell and Ice Cube really hanging out like that? Cousins. They're cousins, but they yeah. were they they were like close, right? It was one of those things where it was like Q's mom was like, "Yo, Q's, <laughs> Q's, that's your cousin. Help your cousin out, right? Okay, <laughs> yeah, it was that type of shit." So I guess going back to those new music seminars, what were kind of stuff were you seeing there? Man, I was rolling around with John Forte. And um and the cats who started Lyricist Lounge and my friend Juju and Rubik's and we were we were sneaking into hotel parties and, <laughs> and, and, and and getting one person would have a badge and we'd pass the badge around and get everybody the badge is the badge was a big deal in my life. 
back then, having one of those new music seminar badges. And I was hanging out with like uh, John Forte was a, was my rap, rap partner, but he was he was sort of a protege of the of the Gangstar crew, the foundation. So I didn't really hang out with Guru and Premier that much back then, but I knew Black and I knew Mal- Malachi the Nutcracker and I knew Little Dap and I knew J Root. I knew the people around Big Suge. I knew the people who would come around Gangstar. The Gangstar crew was like, I would be in high school saying, yeah, I know Gangstar. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Um, so where, how'd you get into music in the first place? I guess through your dad's record collection, but like, you know, this is like, obviously you're, you're, you know, a, a deep enough fan of music that you're going to new music seminars at such a young age. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted to be a rapper at, at a young age. When I was in junior high school, I decided I, my, my first love was baseball. And I loved everything about baseball. When I was in junior high school, and I, I decided that puberty hit, and I wanted the girls became more important. Um, but it, I fell in love with hip hop in 1987, 88. I fell in love with it. I fell in love, 88 in particular. People, a lot of hip hop historians and fans of the culture will say that 88 is the best year of hip hop. I think that that's, there's tangible evidence of that with all the records that came out. And that was just the, the year that I was most uh, most developing as a human being. Um, you know, uh, And I, I started to write and I joined a rap group quickly with my cousins, Sada and Justin. We had a group called a GAP because I was Genesis and Sada was a DJ Assault and Justin was a prophetical prince. And we used to like, I started creating hip hop music at the same time I started listening to it. So I was just fully immersed in this culture. I was There was never a point where I was like a, a casual fan of hip hop and I wasn't making hip hop music. Um. And so I just saw myself as, it was my identity. I listened to a Tropical Quest or a De La Soul or a Jungle Brothers record. That was me. It was me I was listening to. That's how I felt. It also really feels like, like you're saying, 88 being such a huge year for hip hop. It's also like a huge year for hardcore. Like the 88 stuff is like, well, that's Connecticut when Connecticut kind of takes over with Youth of the Day and all, and all those bands. Well, that's, that's interesting because that's where I went as to Connecticut. And so maybe that's why I never, until you just said it, I didn't understand that that Connecticut was sort of a hotbed for any type type of a punk music scene. I didn't know that until you just said this, but um, it it, it makes I was in the heart of Connecticut. It's funny because Sasha Jenkins was just on the show a couple weeks ago, you know, from Ego Trip and stuff, and he was talking about how you know that year '88 is when all the Connecticut kids came to New York, and it really changed New York hardcore, and that's like when emo kind of gets started out of the birth of that. Okay. Um. So it is like it's it's amazing how the the two parallel kind of things run the whole way through it feels like right um going back to your journey like once you kind of like started making music like how you know like and it's also i guess you know not to you know, on another digression but it, like it's also funny how you like you're saying like you know you're inspired to get started right away in the same way punk rock tells you to like just get involved right away it's like hip-hop right like sid vicious never played bass until he decided <laughs> to be in the sex business right? yeah you learn as you fail right um i um I got very good at writing rap lyrics very quickly because I was already into poetry and plays and I was lauded in my neighborhood and in my, my, my Brooklyn high school for how good of a lyricist I was. Um, so when I went to, I got sent away to boarding school cause I was cutting a lot of school. Um, and my parents are educators and they freaked them out and they spent all their money and almost went broke sending me to boarding school. And, um, the first kids I hung out with, the first, my first friend was David Sherman, who was sort of the Trustafarian hippie, grateful dead, kid and then there was a uh, david klopp who's now a big rock and roll engineer in los angeles but back then he was like a blues traveler fish 
fish kind of guy. <laughs> Jam band dude. Yeah. And then there was Mike May, my friend from Syracuse, New York, who used to cut a mohawk into his hair and wear <laughs> Doc Martens and and wear army fatigue jackets. And back then, like, I think it was like, this was 93. So Nas Illmatic came out. And so Nas and everybody was dressing like they were wearing army fatigues and boots. People were in army fatigues in the, in the in Greenwich Village. People were wearing the kids, kids, like hip hop club kids were wearing Doc Martens. Doc Martens, hoodies, army fatigue jackets. Well, what does that sound like? It sounds like punk. Yeah. It sounds like punk. So now, so now Mike is coming around me and I'm, I'm, I'm quoting him Karis One lyrics and Rakim lyrics. And he's quoting me Jello Biafra and Henry Rollins stuff. And we're like, this is the same shit. Mm -hmm. And then like Judgment Night comes out. And Biohazard does a record with Onyx. And De La Soul does a record with Atari Teenage Fan Club. And me and Mike May, we decide that we're going to form a punk rock hip hop band. Because he played bass. And we called it One Down. And we painted the words One Down. We bought army jackets from the Surplus and painted one down on the on the back of the jackets, and we walked around the school. Now, keep in mind, it's a boarding school, so we had a, a dress code. Yeah. So you had to wear, like, a jacket with a tie and all of that. We had all of that on, and you had, could only wear blue and, like, khaki were the colors. We had all, and we had all that on, and we, on top of that, we had our, our one-down fatigue jackets. Oh, that's and so awesome. And we practiced all the time, but we never recorded or wrote or performed anywhere. Because you got to be one of the first kind of like after the Judgment Night soundtrack, of course, a lot of artists start, but you're really early under the jump of that rap metal kind of combination, I guess. Yeah, it was, I, you know, I, I really enjoyed listening to those. I, I, I used to write like Dead Kennedy's lyrics and Operation Ivy lyrics on my, on my walls at home because I just, the, the, what, the things they were saying were so uh, poignant and so relevant to my life. And, um, you know, um, and then I was watching, like, I was watching, um, I guess it started to become, I, I started moving out of punk into more like alternative rock, I guess what it'd be called. I started watching a lot of 120 Minutes mm -hmm. on MTV and like listening to like a lot of REM and shit like that. That's, that's like, that's, that's like far, kind of far away from punk, right? Well, no, but REM is funny. Like, once again, they're a group that, you know, comes out of their own little punk scenes in Athens, Georgia. Right, right? like a southern punk scene. Yeah, yeah. Like, it's, that's the thing I like, you know, I love about it is the fact that, like, in Atlanta, you've got RuPaul, David Cross, and uh, William from Neon Christ, and now uh, Allison Chains, all going to the same shows together. Like, it's, it's amazing where all these people went. Yeah, yeah. So I remember REM got really, really, really big and then so, so when I graduated, it became about, uh, you know, Nirvana and that whole sound and, and Pearl Jam, so I kind of the grunge thing kind of came into vogue. And then it became cool when Nirvana, Nirvana, Kurt Cobain in particular, made it cool for black kids to listen to music with guitars in it. Like we recently did um, a, a collaboration with Denzel Curry and, you know, he's got that Club Cobain song and there's a lot of like, stuff in hip hop and rap that, you know, as you're saying, references Kurt Cobain. Why do you think Yeah, Kurt Cobain is a huge influence in hip hop. Yeah, why do you think that is out of all the artists? Um, I, uh, from my perspective, and I'm sure it was different, Denzel Curry is way younger than me, so I'm sure his perspective is different. Totally different, yeah. But from my, my perspective, it was the, it was the visual. It was, ter it was MTV was for, like, like for, for a black kid from Brooklyn, you, you watching MT, watching and anything on MTV besides your MTV raps was, was like, you're weird. Yeah. It's like, why are you even looking at that? So it was like, 
it was like a point of pride. It was like a way for me to be rebellious. Um, the visual, the video for Team Spirit, I think blew everybody away. I think the, the the song that came out years before, decades before, video killed the radio star. I think this is where we get to the apex of it, where where punk rock, which is now being called grunge rock, the aesthetic is captured so beautifully. They look so beautiful. The teenagers with the anarchy shit. I mean, the, the cheerleaders with the anarchy shit was such a powerful image. Um, the the seeing seeing the state the way it was like they were they were in like a pool or something. Or was like they were there was like levels. Yeah. Uh, but seeing seeing how the people res- responded to the sort of build up of the guitar, seeing that and the way it was captured so so beautifully, I think that was what what did it. That's what did it for me. It's like I was already into that type of music, but uh, you know the the the, the melody. The song is melodic. The song is is very deep. The song is just it's all it's. I don't believe in. Perf- I'm not a guy who strives for perfection. But that's like as close to perfect of a record mixed mixed with a video, mixed with the timing in which it dropped that you could that you could ask for. I would think it was so overwhelming that it that it killed this man. Is that around the same time, like not to pivot on that note, but like, is that the same time that you guys are kind of getting started with Lyricist Lounge or how did that? Yeah, that's around the same time. You ever seen that? But there's a picture of like Tupac and Biggie and Kurt Cobain in a in a in a Jeep. Yes. Smoking a blunt together. You've never seen that picture. <laughs> like that picture captures what was going on at that time. Yeah, that would that would I could see Tupac because I hung out with Tupac and Biggie when they were friends, and I could see they they were they, their their idea of hip hop was rebellion. I could see them seeing Chris at that at that time. You see Kirk Cobain, you're like, oh, that's that that's that fucking dude. That's that guy. You know what I'm saying? Like. Mm-hmm. He was just, yeah, he was just so influential. I'm sorry, what was your question? No, I was just wondering because it's, I, I think it's, it's fascinating that this is also, as you're saying, happening at the same time as Lyricist Lounge is kind of getting going too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Lyricist Lounge. Um, we there was definitely a, um, there was definitely a the the, the overlap there is the D, DIY stuff mm-hmm. is the idea that and hip hop got this and we, now you see it manifested in a JPEG Mafia. But it started, JPEG Mafia is like the child of the Lyricist Lounge aesthetic and the punk aesthetic. Um, and the, the Lyricist Lounge guys understood, uh, the, 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 I would look at the Lyricist Lounge guys sort of how you look at like Malcolm McLaren and Vivian Westwood. Yeah. Like as the people who were outsiders of the culture, they weren't playing instruments, they weren't, but they were in, they were there. And so they they understood that it needed a venue. Or, you know, that's, that's, that, that's not even a good, good, Good uh, 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 analogy. I would say more like whoever the guys who started, the guys who turned CBGBs from a blues club to a punk club. Yeah, or the Gilman or something in in Berkeley, where like Operation Ivy got started in Green Day. Yeah, it's like guys, people who had people, con- club promoters, and people who had access to venues who were the same age as us, who just understood. Like Anthony and Danny, Danny wanted to dance and DJ. Anthony. Marshall thinks he can rap, um, but neither of them were good enough at either thing, <laughs> and they're both very good at promoting parties. Yeah, yeah, you know. So they 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 came together, and that's what it was like. And those guys are huge. I don't know if you know you know Maya. Well, you might because I might have mentioned it in some of the podcasts and, and my, my interviews. But those guys, I mean, I love those guys. I, I love those guys to death because those guys told me no all the time. They were like, "You are not good enough for this stage." Mm. And I, I bear no ill will towards them because I wasn't until I was. And when I was and I proved it, 
they kept putting me on that stage. It's amazing when that, when that, you know, years later, obviously, when that double CD comes out, I really feel like that had a massive impact on DIY hardcore at the time. Like you talking about that lyricist lounge CD? Yeah, the lyricist lounge CD. Yeah, I think it was more the lyricist lounge thing to me was a product of the raucous thing. Yeah, but I, you might look at it different from as a fan, like as from a fan's perspective at that time. I I I might have a tainted lens because of my position in it, um, but I really feel like to me it was more like what LP. The lyricist lounge thing that they were they had their sights set on Hollywood, which is why they went and did that TV show and it, and it flopped. Um, because they, I, I think they didn't understand how much control you need to have. Like they completely gave up control of their of their brand uh, with that TV show. It was like it was nothing that had nothing to do with what the lyricist launch was. And I was happy that everyone got to go to Hollywood and have a job for for six months. You know what I'm saying? Like all these, I I was happy to see rappers I was in a cipher with yesterday in a corner now I turn on MTV and I see you in a, in a cipher with Snoop Dogg. Um, that was dope to see, but it had no no lasting value yeah uh, that that tv show but what i what i think more captures it sonically and dyi is, is lp and what he did after rock is lp giving raucous the blueprint the independent as fuck blueprint they co-opted that they had the big dollars to 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 take his his aesthetic his ethos and, and put it on t-shirts and then when he saw what, he saw how they capitalized on his ideas, he moved away from them, started dissing Ross. Say, see, he can't, I, look, I, I love LP, but he, he, you know, when he, when he's talked about when he said I was on Raucous when he said, uh, get signed to Raucous, I'd I'd rather be butt fucked by a nose raped by a bunch of Nazis or shit yeah, like that. Yeah, something like that. Yeah, like that's between you know, no, not between you and me because I'm sure this is going to be heard once you put it out. Yeah. <laughs> but, but um. But that's dangerously close to not being responsible when it comes to talking about Nazis, yeah. right? It's dangerously close. It goes, it walks right to the edge, you know. Punk punk rocks artists went over that edge often, mm-hmm. um, and so even with that, like I think LP was flirting with dangerous ideas, um, in in his in his attempt to try to be a free independent artist. Um, I I would never uh, ever associate. LP with anything racist or a Nazi or anything like that. I think he's, I would never call him a culture vulture. I think he's one of the most brilliant uh, contributors to hip hop culture. Um, but what he, with the fantastic damage and, and deaf jux and then run the jewels. Like that shit is, that shit is punk rock shit. Well, it's funny. Cause like with raucous records coming out and it, and once again, this is just me being a fan in Canada, right? Like not having any inside knowledge at the time, but like, it felt like, Oh, this must be hip hop's, lookout records or this must be hip-hop's like um you know revelation records or something like that's putting out all the cool underground artists and stuff like that and only years later that you find out like there's a lot more machinations behind the scene and maybe it didn't end as well as it should have but it really did feel like oh this is like a a new alternative to to stuff that's being played on tv at the time right right and i mean and 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 the reason why you were able to see that in canada is because raucous uh, entertainment had uh, investors yeah. involved that that allowed them to play the game on that level to pr- to market and promote their shit on the same level as all the majors. Yeah, no, it did, and it, it you know it came out and it was all of a sudden it, like it was like a takeover of music. It felt like right, not in a negative way. I mean, but just like the fact that no, like- no, no, I understand, I understand, but I think I do think that's an interesting part of the story is that they sold this idea, they spent money to present this idea that we were super independent. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, well, it's at a time when you could still fake that, you know, like, and obviously yeah. people can still fake it a little bit today, but it just feels like there's a little more accountability. Yeah. Um, going back to to kind of your journey, um, when did you feel like you were ready to take that stage of the Lyricist Lounge? Um, John Forte. John Forte was a was a popular performer at the time, and I was. I always wanted to get on with him, and um, I felt like it early. I felt like it from the first time I, I started hanging out with these guys, um, like 16, 17. Um, but my first show, first time they ever let me, they let me, they 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 gave me an, a shot, and they let me rock. But then back then it was all about your your crew and your clan and your cliques and all that. And so I invited. I had a song with John Forte and Rubix and some other rappers. I invited all my friends. I'm like, yo, I got a show. We're going to do the song. We gonna... And I did the whole show, and I ended up only doing, like, one verse. <laughs> and then it was, like, it was a mess. And I, I, I got my show cut in half. It was too many people. So that happened. And then, like, six months later, I was given another shot. Because they were doing them every month. And, and is, is this before you did the Mood LP? Or you're on the Mood LP? This was around that time. So this was, like, the Mood LP came out in 97. We were working on it in '95. Hot Tech was driving back and forth. This was this was like '95 that this happened. Hot Tech was driving back and forth from Cincinnati to work on the Mood album, and um, he drove. He he came up, um, and we performed that. It was hosted by Q-Tip, and I performed at SOBs. And what I'm gonna tell you the difference when I performed my lyrics over those Hot Tech tracks. Hot Tech early in his career sounded his 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 music was competitive early in his career without any success at all. His music sounded on par with DITC and, and Q-Tip and Premier. Like he still was an amateur. He still wasn't, those are the greats. He still wasn't at that level yet. But as far as the sonic quality of his shit, it was comparable. And so me um, rhyming over those high tech beats, people heard me in a different way. And it was like, oh, he could rap. And I was like, oh yeah, you know, I've been telling y'all, but hearing me over that, that, that canvas was different. Well, also, you know, the two of you, it's gotta be one of the great creative partnerships ever. Like, you know, it's just like it's so many classic songs, you know, so like an unending well, kind of feed off each other. It feels like. Yeah. I think high tech is one of the best producers I've ever, ever, ever heard. Mm -hmm. If not the best producer I've ever worked with on that, on that level. Uh, what also at that time, you know, 1995, once again, just from a fan perspective, but it did feel like what you were talking about earlier when you're at boarding school, it was different now. Like hip hop was kind of crossing over and kids were getting into Nas and kids were getting a Wu-Tang Clan. Like, what do you think drove that? Um, the, the marketing and the promotion that was in 1991, you started to have 1991, 92, 93, uh, start starting with Dr. Dre and Snoop Dogg you started to have hip-hop crossover to that MTV that people used to think was weird. Mm -hmm. um, people where I was from used to think was weird. You know, MTV was just white music. But then you had Dr. Dre and Snoop Dogg, which Dr. Dre took the added step of not just sampling classics, West Coast classics that largely were uh, sounds from the Midwest, like Parliament Funkadelic and Roger and all that stuff they were mm -hmm. sampling. Um, he figured out that Instead of sampling them, you just play it over. You get the best musicians you can find and you play it over. And so Dr. Dre, that G-Funk, Dr. Dre chronic, original chronic sound was so universal. It was so universal. Um, when, I, when I think about punk, I think about 
people how people would tr- would would be one of the draws was hearing the the sort of freeness of hearing people say offensive things to music. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. You know, that's part of it, right? Yeah, yeah, 100%. And so Dr. Dre is creating these incredible sonic landscapes based on very familiar m- melodies that people already know, people are already going to dance to, and saying the most gangster shit. The most gangster shit they could find to say. And it just it, it just worked like gangbusters. Um, Biggie and... Uh, and his his sound, what what was done on that album, Diddy was trying to do an East Coast version of Dr. Dre. Mm-hmm. So so first you had Dr. Dre and them go really 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 big on MTV, and then around this and then and then you started to see because it made hip hop big. So when Doctor when Dr. Dre and Snoop Snoop Dogg went big on MTV, then it's like, well, what else is there? Well, look, there's House of Pain, and they're white. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So that's doubles like a twofer right there. And then and then it's like, well, the the, the sound the House of Pain is is employing is like it's like what? It's, it's DJ Muggs, it's like it's what Cypress Hill. Then you got Cypress Hill. Well, they're talking about weed. Well, now they're talking about okay, everybody want to be a rap star, rock star. Cypress Hill's doing their show where they could tour with the rock artists. And now you have these big tours. And then you start to see like because Dr. Dre and Cypress Hill and House of Pain was so big, people started it became a boom at that time. And people start looking around. What kind of hip hop sound was could would would fit in that? And that's when Das Effects got really big. Nice and Smooth got really big. De La Soul, Tribe Called Quest, Black Sheep, Onyx, all these groups in the early '90s started going platinum, having videos on MTV. Your MTV Raps was the most popular show. It started outpacing 120 minutes. Um, and hip hop that was the hip hop explosion. And the hip hop created in that time that went commercial but was still considered an underground sound is that's what you associate with the best of hip hop on the planet. Like if someone's right now, if we do want a party, right? Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter what age you are. It doesn't matter if you're a grandmother or you're 12 years old. If, if someone's playing a party and someone throws on that hip hop hooray or that uh, crisscross and make you jump or house of pain, jump around you know, or one of those early Dr. Dre and Snoop, everybody's going to move to that record. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I never thought of what you, how you said it, like with uh, going back to the Dr. Dre production thing that very much like punk rock, where you're taking these, these riffs from Chuck Berry songs, you're taking Mm -hmm. riffs from who songs, and you're just saying way more intense stuff over top of them instead. Right. Um, One thing that I'm obsessed with on this show is uh, the group Frontline, which featured Mackie from the Cro-Mags on drums. It was like a graffiti hardcore band, but the, the vocalists eventually become stimulated dummies. And I was wondering okay. if you had any involvement. Stimulated Dummies uh, was like S- SD production from hip hop? Yeah, SD50s. Yeah. SD50s, right? Yeah. That's like Dante Ross in them. Yeah, absolutely. Dante Ross sang in Frontline, which Beastie Boys cover Frontline on one of their records too, but they actually never put out a record proper um, Right. Ever. No, Dante is somebody who I consider a good friend of mine. Uh, we DJ parties together. We talk shit online together. Um, you know, he's somebody who I consider like, yeah, just somebody who I'm like, yo, that's my that's my guy. I knew he was heavily involved in the punk scene. I did not realize that he was a, a singer for the band. Yeah, like it, apparently, I now this might be a little out of my depth on this, but two of the guys that were part of the SD50s used to do vocals at different times, obviously for Frontline. Um, you know, which which Frontline is a great band because they really do epitomize what we were talking about earlier, that graffiti kind of connection that happens a little bit between hip hop and punk rock because they See, were now that now. <laughs> What you're saying makes me understand Dante better. Now I realize why he talks so much shit. <laughs> no, he talks shit like he's a tough guy. I'm like, this guy thinks he's a tough guy. He's, 
He's like, he's actually a tough guy. He's like, I live a lead singer for a punk band. <laughs> like, yeah, they, yeah, that's how he talks. He talks like he's a lead singer of a punk band. That's, that's exactly how he talks. Well, I think I think he would have been at the A7 back in the day. So I imagine you, you would have had to be a little hard to get through uh, Alphabet City. Right, right. Um, but also, like that, I, it's amazing how they're kind of like a parallel to to the production that's happening on the West Coast. Obviously, completely different sound and style that they're doing, but like so many classic records in that sort of ninety to ninety four period. Right. No, I agree. And, and 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 you know, De La Soul came out. Me, myself, and I in, in eighty eight. And what De La did was they, for me, was they pulled back the fourth wall. They pulled back the curtain, and they let us in on the on what was the inner workings of the music business, but in a comedic way. And they had Monica Lynch, who was the person who signed them. She was represented by a duck. They had like done a cartoon, and she was a duck in the cartoon. No, no, no. She wasn't a duck. She was a Dante was a duck, I think. And it was like they called him Dante the Scrub, and <laughs> and they, he was represented. They was, could call him a scrub the whole time. So the whole time, my introduction to Dante Ross is, well, that's the, he's a scrub. <laughs> and they had a song, they had a song, and the hook was Dante. It's a scrub. Yes. Dante's a really big scrub. He's he's a super scrub. That's what they said on the on on me myself and I. They said Dante is a super scrub. Yeah. So I always thought he was just kind of a herb. But then when you when you understand his story and you, you when I when I got got into the music business and by that time he was an A and R loud and you know he's like he's rolling with like the hardest of the hard hip hop acts. I'm like oh maybe Dante's not a scrub. <laughs> maybe De La Soul was lying to me. <laughs> you're right though they did really pull back i remember seeing a documentary i think it's the history of rock and roll thing that time life did and they they show how you sample a record in that mm -hmm. like they're, they're like here's how you sample a record here's how we did it and it's like you know in a lot of ways you know obviously completely different thing but like they're they're kind of in the same way that a lot of these punk bands were for for kids like they they are for hip-hop kids where like yo here's how you do it here's how the industry works here's how we did it and right like playbook right yeah, it's, it's 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 a the culture is about being in the culture. The culture is about look. It's a hip hop. Hip hop. They call it down by law. That era that Fab Five Freddy and all of them were running around to the punk clubs. You had to be down by law. If you didn't know, you didn't know. Mm -hmm. And you had to. You couldn't just be a spectator. You couldn't just be there just because because in punk you, they called you a, a poser. You mm -hmm. know what I'm saying? Like yeah. like you couldn't just be someone who just you had to participate. That's why my experience with hip hop is I started participating as soon as I listened to it. You, what what do you like the 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 Milk and Giz song Top Billing? He he says my contribution to this jam is confusing because I am Milk D. He's telling you I can't show up to the jam without a contribution. What is it that you do? Do you rap? Do you do graffiti? Do you break dance? Are you a are you a journalist or are you a, a rape? What is it that you adding to this? If not, I'm looking at you strange suspect. Like who are you? Mm -hmm. I think punk is the same way. It's like you, if you come to a punk club, it's like the, the, I, I was reading a thing the other day where they said some magazine in the 70s said, look, it was a punk magazine and they had an illustration that said, here's three chords. Now go form a band. Yeah. It's from Sniffing Glue, I think, issue number three. They have that. Oh, okay. Look at you. <laughs> I don't know for sure. It might be an earlier issue. I don't know for sure, but yeah. I think now I'm committed issue to that, number but... three came out in March 76. <laughs> It was the buzzcocks on the cover. I realized as I said it, it was way more assured than it sounded in my head. <laughs> um, so I want to give myself a little bit place to back up if it's not. Um, but I thought, I thought when I read that, I thought that was I'm like that's that's like hip hop. It's like no, you have to participate. Yeah, you can't just stand around. And if you're gonna stand around, you better be fucking fresh. You, be, I better be able to look at me. Damn, where did you get those sneakers? Look at that hat. Look at the pants. 
<laughs> you can't just stand around. If not, you can't even get in. Yeah. No, it's amazing also how, like, like we were talking earlier about the the influence of, like, the fatigues and stuff like that and, like, sort of mm-hmm. that, but, like, how how much sneaker culture has infiltrated punk and hardcore where there's bands that, you know, do, do shirts about sneakers now. Like it's really become, Wait, there's, there's like a, a, like sneaker punk bands. Oh my gosh. Definitely. Oh, that's hilarious. Definitely. My <laughs> friend, uh, who's a designer for concept shoes out of Boston mm-hmm. concept skate shop. He actually, mm-hmm. uh, did a hardcore band called cold world. And, uh, I'll, I'll send you someone you're interested. I'm just sorry. I'm just sorry. There's, I, I'm sorry. I, as much as I like sneakers and punk rock music, and I'm not mad at it, the idea that someone is like doing a hardcore punk band about the new dunks. It's like, <laughs> I was like <laughs> it's true. It is really true. Like it has become it, it, songs an about obsession. Supreme. Yeah. Shit. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, it's definitely, uh, you know, and like, once again, even with the Supreme guys, you know, there's that sort right. of punk rock kind of doing national tour sponsored by zoomies. <laughs> 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 I'm waiting for Healy's to make a comeback. Hot topic. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Healy Hot Topic shoes and things like that. I'm I'm, I'm taking the piss because I shop at both Zoomies and Hot Topic. I'm not even going to front. I do because I'm going to tell you why. I'm going to tell you why. Because it's about the eye. If you have the right eye and you tra- and you're you're trapped in a lockdown in Ohio like I am, and the only thing around is the Beaver Creek fucking mall, <laughs> yeah. then you I just look, I could find a good shirt in in Zoomies if I look long enough yeah yeah no that's true Maybe I, even a hat hot topic you'd have a hard time you'd be wearing a, like a pickle no, rick golf shirt or something no, I, yo i'm not i look look i'm not ashamed to wear pickle rick <laughs> you might catch me in a pickle rick golf shirt and it's like i i'm not ashamed of that but that wouldn't be my first choice I, hot topic <laughs> i think for hot topic you stick to the you stick to the fucking um band t-shirts yeah you just and i know i'm losing all my punk, punk points that i get gathered from the first part of the interview by saying that I shop at Zoomies Hot Topic, but I don't give a fuck because that's how punk I am. Well, I gotta say, tell us this is one of the top five <laughs> conversations I've had doing this podcast, and we're like three hundred plus episodes now. So okay, okay, uh, I'll, I'll take all the punk point hits for you because this okay, is, cool. This is we'll awesome. transfer them to you. That's that's you. That's that's your white privilege. Yeah, exactly. I will take the punk point losses for white privilege one hundred percent any okay, day cool. of the week. Cool. Day. But I, I think that's the thing that I I love when you when you rep this stuff in interviews is because it's like. It, it, it's just like a, such a deep understanding of why this music's important. And it's not necessarily important because of the songs. It's important because, you know, like we're saying, like rap, hip hop and punk are the only places that tell you, you can do this, go out and do it and, and carve your own path. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I agree. I think I, I, um, I, I agree with the overlap of aesthetic and uh, it's exciting to me. Um, it's exciting to me that, you discovered that you wanted to have this conversation with me because you saw me having an interview with JPEG Mafia. I, I feel like that that ties the, ties the bow up nicely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, no. It really does feel like like you're saying like this has been, you know, obviously hip hop has always been DIY. Like the genre wouldn't exist without people taking you know the the the, the ball into their own hands and running with it and and creating something. But at the same time, like it just it feels like this is such an amazing moment where there's like an explosion of of thousands of young rappers that are are able to through the internet kind of have that 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 moment to just build their own worlds mm-hmm. like you don't need a label anymore like it's almost like the cassette revolution was to punk rock was what the internet thing is, has become to to rap music it feels like from an outside perspective too well I, I think that and i think that even in this time that we're talking in right now it was already headed towards that direction but the, this lockdown situation accelerated it um, mm. And people are very disillusioned with how to 
market to promote music. Um, you know, I'm on, I'm I, because I DJ sometimes and because I'm in the, in the, in the industry, I get emails all the time from artists promoting records. And it's, it's just kind of sad because it's like, it, it's like, I don't, I don't feel like it's just me at this point, but I feel like I get a promotion for a new single from, you know, this rapper or that rapper. And I'm like, the way that you're doing it feels archaic. It feels like it doesn't matter. It feels mm -hmm. like what you're talking about doesn't matter. It feels like the song doesn't matter. And I'm not, I'm not saying art doesn't matter. I'm saying celebrity doesn't matter. Yeah. You know, the idea that your people are still trying to market things on views and clicks and hits and likes and, you know, like because we're, because as, we're not all trying to go to the club. I'm just speaking about hip hop now because we're not all trying to go to the club and, and radio, you know, terrestrial radio is, is, it's not what it used to be. The, we don't, we not, we're not going to the malls to buy the outfits. And so we're not as interested in keeping up with the new hot song to, to go to the club. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, it's like, it's like wet ass pussy is an interesting record. It's uh, as sonically, it's a fantastic record. Um, you know, people might have a diff difference of people have difference of opinion on who should be listening to that particular song. <laughs> you know, I think consenting adults all agree that you know, they can, all can agree on things. But yeah, I mean, do I think a song like that should be played on the radio? No, I don't think it's uh, during the day. You know, on on FM radio. No, I don't. I don't put that on Cardi B and Megan Thee Stallion. That's on the program directors. But. I'm far more interested in Cardi B talking about Candace Owens. Yeah. And I think that's her, that's her hit single right now. You know what I'm saying? Like, like wet ass pussy is like, yeah, whatever. It's, it's cool. It's like that, that gives people who want a distraction, something to be distracted by. Um, and there's nothing wrong with that. Um, but when Cardi B goes on Instagram and says, yo, I got the number one record in the country. I got the number one record in, in, in Japan, I got the number one record in the UK. I'm a good citizen. I pay a lot of money in taxes. Why shouldn't politicians want to sit down with me? Mm -hmm. That to me is is her hit, is her hit record. That's what people are more interested in. Uh huh. Yeah. Uh, it feels it feels that like I was watching uh, uh, the base uh, watching baseball and basketball last night with my eldest son, and and just you know like Black Lives Matter in the back seats, all the players' jerseys having you know different you know. I guess slogans is a poor use of words there, but like having different statements on the back, like it, it really is using platform to force conversation. Yeah. And some of it, and some of it, uh, some of that stuff is, some of that stuff is, is corporate bullshit. Some yeah. of it is performative. Some of it just looks gaudy and, and corny and misses the point and says that because we do this, we did this, therefore we don't have to do anything else. Some of it does that, but we, I expect the corporate interest to do that. The players themselves and the energy they put into making sure that that's, those messages are represented, I give them all the respect in the world for what the players have done to stand up and force some of this stuff to happen. Yeah, well, I'm, like you're saying, I'm sure it wouldn't have happened without the players forcing it. It's not like these billionaire white dudes are going to you know, adopt these points of view on their own. Right. They don't, they, they don't even give a fuck about those points of view. It's like, oh, I still, I still need to make money in this climate, and this is how I, this is how I do it. This, this is how I participate in the free market, but it has nothing to do with what they actually believe. Yeah, I think for, for me, once again, just watching from the outside, but like seeing that that the NBA strike happen and just being like, oh my gosh, this is oh yeah, that's incredible. very powerful. And 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 I'm I, and I'm sure you agree with me when I when I say this. As powerful it is for you, 
I'm not a young, I'm, I'm a, I'm a middle-aged black person for a young black person to see that. I can't, I, I'd never even imagined in my lifetime that I would see NBA players do a strike and then show back up with black Lives matter t-shirts. on. I, I'd never imagined that the possibility of that. And so then you, now you have kids who are, who are my age when space jam came out, you know, who, <laughs> they're, they're, I, I know what space jam did. I'm not even into sports. I don't give a fuck about sports. I don't, I don't even, I don't enjoy watching basketball. I'm, I'm, I, I enjoy, I enjoy the, I think it's a beautiful looking sport. I enjoy the performance aspect of it. I respect athletes. I'm more into the cultural phenomenon of it, of what athletes are able to do with their cultural currency. I'm very interested in. Mm-hmm. Um, so I understand what Space Jam and Michael Jordan meant for kids my age, for me, and I wasn't even into basketball. Imagine if basketball was my life. Imagine if I was really kid into basketball, like a lot of kids are. Space Jam was fucking huge. That representation of of oh my god, is look it's like it's, it's black self-made millionaires playing with Bugs Bunny. And now LeBron James is coming about LeBron LeBron James is about to do the same thing, but he's doing it coming in like Black Lives Matter and fuck all this. I might not even play right now. Yeah. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, 100 percent That's a different that's a different that hits different. I think even I like you're talking about Space Jam. I think pro wrestling, a wrestler like Biggie Langston going out and talking about Black Lives Matter on, on pro wrestling, like a company that donates more money to Trump than any other entertainment thing out there. And here, here he is using that platform to address stuff that matters. Man, see, even, see, and here's the thing. I'm going to, I feel there's a dual point with this. I feel like for young black people, they need to see that it, those imageries, those yeah. images. You know what I'm saying? But I also, especially with wrestling, man, I just watched Beyond the Mat for the first time like three days ago. Okay, yeah. <laughs> right? And I, so I already, I already knew wrestling was fake, but I, I already knew this documentary was like supposed to, be, supposed to be the story of Jake the Snake and other people. But watching it, I'm like, I already had my opinion of Vince McMahon, but watching it, I'm like, oh, this motherfucker here. You know what I'm saying? So it's like I don't put it past Vince McMahon from just from what I just saw on Beyond the Mat for him to be like, yo, we need a Black Lives Matter wrestler. <laughs> oh no, well, he's got an angle right now with this whole group that's a hundred percent being kind of pitched as being protesters and these guys are the bad guys. You know, I think I think once so he's again, doing that. Yeah, but I think once again with Biggie Langston, it's him, you know, taking it, taking that power and being like, I'm gonna use this platform to talk about what I want to talk about and not Well, I don't know enough about that individual to speak on his yeah. intentions. So I reserve judgment on that, but I don't trust WWE at all. Oh, I but think yeah, you're I, but I imagine <laughs> but I'm but but also what I learned from Beyond the Mat is that some those those are those are guys who a lot of them that's the only thing they know from their training how to make a living. And a lot of them try their best to do to do to be good people and be be good examples for the community while participating is something that we all know is fake. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's, it's, you know, I'm, oh my gosh, I, that's a whole separate podcast. I'm sorry. I don't mean to take you down the wrestling. Uh, I did a TV show oh, okay. about wrestling myself. So that's a, that's like a, a nerd, nerd wormhole that you do not want to go down. But okay, okay. Um, I've kept you for, for forever on this podcast and I so appreciate it. Would you come back at some point down the road for a part two? Um, sure. But it, this is what I, just, I, I challenge you for this, for, for if I come back, if yes. I come back with part two, we have to do the entire uh, episode about black punk bands. I would love to. I, I have, I'm a huge fan of death and why die and, and bad brains, obviously. Like, I, I really feel like going back, you know, wicked witch, like there's all these artists that, that are overwritten kind of in the history that have shaped this genre. Like obviously rock and roll is black music, you know, mm-hmm. so punk is by extension, black music out of the gate. But I think there's also a ton of artists that really shaped it directly that are, 
that are overlooked. And I would, I would relish the opportunity to talk about that with you. Yeah, particularly, I'm glad you mentioned death off top because particularly, you know, I, I think that, um, and you sound like a knowledgeable guy. So I'm going to go ahead and assume that your listeners know about death. Um, and, and, but, but most of the people I know, mm-hmm. Clint, who are, who are very avid music fans and listeners do not know about this band and do not know about their, their influence on the genre before, before the Patti Smiths and the, and the Sex Pistols and the Ramones and all that, the things they were doing. And a, a, a lot of people, a, a, more people know about Bad Brains, but, you know, not enough people know about them. Um, and uh, what, 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 what were you about to say? Oh, no, sorry. I was going to say, going uh, like, you know, the Cramps, obviously, like one of the foundational mm-hmm. bands for punk rock. There is no Cramps without Screaming Jay Hawkins. Like, <laughs> Screaming right. Jay Hawkins invented punk rock way Well, that's just, that's just, dude, now you're going, now you're going all the way. See now we we could go all the way back to Big Mama Thornton. Now yeah, now yeah. we could go all the way back, but I think that um, you know I think that's it's very I think you agree with me that it's very important to have in the conversation, um, especially when you're speaking about to a hip hop artist about the connections there. Absolutely. Well, it's I I did this thing last year where I went to a bunch of DIY shows on the West mm-hmm. Coast just like to check them out, and I went to and I, the thing that really surprised me in all these shows is that like punk finally looks like it's always been talking about it looking like, you know, like it finally is as diverse as it's always said it is. Like you go to the shows, like there's obviously, you know, white kids there still, but there's also tons of black kids, tons of, of black kids. We need more kids. white kids that we need more white kids at Afropunk though. Or maybe, I don't know, maybe that, maybe they want it to be like a safe space for black kids. I don't, is that what they want? I don't know. <laughs> I, 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 I do not know that at all. I'm going to say, I'm, I'm, gonna... I'm talking to my friend, Chris in the back here. He's shaking his head. Like he's shaking his head. No, like, <laughs> no, it's not what we want. <laughs> uh, but I, I really do. I think uh, this has been a dream conversation to sit down and have this conversation with you. And, and anytime you want to come back and talk about literally anything, you know, that the door is always open. All good. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you, Talib, for coming on the show. And you heard right there, he will be back in the future for part two. And uh, we will nerd out about black punk bands, which is something I am very excited to do. Holy jeez. <laughs> oh, that's why I do this podcast, so I get to sit down and talk to people that I'm a fan of. That is why I do this thing. Speaking of doing this thing, this weekend coming up on the show, like in a few, uh, like a few short days, pretty much the end of this week, uh, we are doing a very, we're going to be doing a big, there's no other way to say it. We're going to be doing a Sopranos weekend here on Turned Out of Punk with not one, but two incredible guests coming up on the show. First, Drea DiMatteo and then Michael Imperioli. This is going to be huge. Talking what else? punk rock we get to the bottom of the james gandolfini green day fandom we talk about all sorts of stuff this is this is huge for me i'm I'm a big fan of sopranos who isn't a big fan of the fucking sopranos and you know like uh once again tristan thank you for making this happen tristan's the one who believes in all this stuff he's the one who chases this stuff down i'm just over here i'm just over here i get to i get to reap the benefits of his hard work i'm just over here going oh yeah just yeah yeah sure yeah Find that person for me to talk to. Find that person I've always wanted to talk to and make them come on my podcast and talk about punk rock. The only thing I can really talk to them about. Thank you, Tristan. I love you, buddy. That's it. That's it for the show this week. Remember, as always, black lives matter. The lives of indigenous people matter. Go out there right now. Show up. Get involved. Get informed. Donate if you can. Sign petitions. Do whatever you can. Remember, this is a turning point in history, and you want to be on the right side of this thing. Um, And fuck fascism at every turn. 
for fuck fuck Nazis, fuck fascism. Uh, also, if go out there and sign your organ donor cards because by the time they come looking for those organs, you're not going to need them anymore. So go ahead and sign that organ donor card. And remember, go out there and make your own culture. Anyone can do this shit. Go out there, start a zine, get involved. You're Talib Kweli talk about it. Go out there and do something. You can't just be an observer. And I know right now none of us are going to shows, so now's the time to, you know, come up with uh, some new cool innovations. Now's the time to start that zine you've been putting off for forever, you know? Also, wear a mask. You know, like, why not? Why not just wear the mask and, and let's get through this thing, okay? And that's it. Uh, stay safe. Uh, I love you. Shout out to everyone. Check in on your friends. Please check in on your friends. And uh, be easy on yourselves. And I will see you next week on the show. Thank you for listening. Goodbye. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, Place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager. Only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.